This is Graham Wardle. Mark Friesen. This is Marty Up North. This is Alex Craner. I'm Rupa Subramania. This is Tom Luongo, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Happy Wednesday, folks. Today's show brought to you by Guardian Plumbing and Heaning. That's Blaine and Joy Steffen. They've thrown their name in for a uh, um, uh, blue-collar roundtable. It's funny. I've had people throw their name in now from Manitoba, from... Uh, well, Rocky Mountain House. And so we're slowly building a blue-collar roundtable that I think could be um, a lot of fun. And um, I don't think it'll end with one. So if you're a blue-collar worker and want to be a part of a blue-collar worker roundtable, uh, hit me up in uh, the uh, – shoot me a text, okay? And so uh, we're just slowly building a list here. And I bring it up on Blaine and Joey's part because Blaine's been teasing me. I went as Mario for uh, Halloween. And he's like, man, you're really into the plumber thing right now, eh? And I'm like, I, I guess so. So uh, when it comes to Guardian Plumbing and Heating, they of course, they are the home of the Guardian Power Station, bringing free electricity to everyone, as well as reliable off-grid solutions, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and beyond. All you got to do is go to guardianplumbing.ca, where you can schedule your next appointment at any time. Uh, Caleb Taves and Renegade Acres, they are um, <clears throat> community spotlight. Eh? They've, uh, Caleb Taves has done this cool thing, where, uh, and I think I'm going to carry this into 2024. So if you want to be a part of... Um, creating a community spot and donating towards that so that we can keep track of community events coming in and different things like that. Um, hit me up via the text line and we'll see if we can't piece together something. Either way, Caleb's done a great job by by stepping forward and doing this. And so, uh, for the kids' sake, has its first meeting in, in some time, December 7th. And it's looking like it's going to be at the Vic Juba. And uh, once I have all the details, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to fire them all off at you. Um, but no, it's going to be uh, Shauna Sandell, uh, the Irreplaceable Parent Project. We've been hearing a lot about her, and it's going to be right up our alley. So uh, mark that down, a Thursday, December 7th, uh, and then uh, we'll hopefully have more details, and I'll be updating it here among other places, and uh, you can hear all about it. The Deer and Steer Butchery is a fast-growing custom cutting and wrapping uh, butchery located near Lloydminster. They focus on high-quality, locally-sourced meats with unparalleled customer service who are proud to be from this community. They're currently seeking a dedicated and experienced butcher to join them, not as just an employee, but as a partner. They also want to reach out to all you fine hunters in hunting season. If you're looking for a place to get your animal... Uh, Diced and sliced, uh, they are the spot. Give them a call, 780-870-8700. Erickson Agro Incorporated out of Irma, Irma, Alberta. That's Kent and Tasha Erickson, family farm, raising four kids, growing food for their community and this great country. Um, well, I think they got their young, oh, not their youngest, I think they got their boy home this weekend, this past weekend. Uh, you know, Blair's been living with us, billeting, this billeting thing, an interesting uh, little uh, thing to do as a family. But Blair's been fantastic. So I got nothing ill to report here, Tasha. I know she uh, likes for me to update on how things are going. They're going pretty good. Silver Gold Bull, they're North America's premier precious metals dealer with state-of-the-art distribution centers in Calgary, Las Vegas. They ensure fast, fully insured, discreet shipping right to your doorstep. So when you're looking for uh, Christmas gifts, a stocking stuffer, a silver coin, just saying, um, I'd be happy if I woke up and there was a silver coin in there. They also offer a diverse set of services, including buyback, wholesale, registered savings, IRA accounts, RRSP, TFSA, as well as storage and refining solutions. You can trust them to elevate your precious metals investment journey with unrivaled expertise and unparalleled convenience. Your prosperity and security are top priority, making Silver Gold Bull the go-to choice for all your precious metal needs. SilverGoldBull.ca. 
All right, let's get on to that tale of the tape. Actually, before we get to the tale of the tape, I want to bring up, uh, <clears throat> in case you miss, uh, today I don't talk about it, uh, Substack. So what we're doing with a lot of the interviews is, um, I'm not cutting any interview short, uh, let's be clear. Um, you know, like, I try to do the best I can with all my interviews, but now what we're going to try and do is uh, slowly start interacting with all of you trying to get out when I'm having different guests on so you can give me questions you'd like to have them asked and then we ask them for the sub stack. Right now, for limited time and limited could be, um, it could be a little while. Like it could be the next year. We're going to make sub stack free. We don't want to, we want to, we want to have people come on. We want you to pledge and pledging, you, you can pledge money to it but it doesn't charge you anything until we decide to turn on, um, you know, the, the, the pay portion of it. But we're trying to build our sub stack uh, audience and we want you guys to uh, follow us there. And if you don't, that's totally cool. It's not the end of the world. But there is some bonus exclusive content that is only going to be found on Substack. We had been previously on Patreon. We listened to all of you. We are getting rid of Patreon and all of it over to Substack. And so over the last week, Akira the Dawn had some bonus there, as did uh, Martin Armstrong. So if you missed any of that, just literally go to Substack, type in Sean Newman Podcast. You can see it all. It's all free. We'll hope you uh, sign up for the emails because that's how they come out as, a, as an email blast whenever there's new content. All right? Now, let's get on to the tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. She has her PhD in statistics, and she's the author of Fisman's Fraud, The Rise of Canadian Hate Science. Talking about Regina Wateel. So buckle up, here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Regina Wateel. So how are you doing, ma'am? I'm doing great. Thanks, Sean. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, now, let's start here. People are going to ask, who is Gina? And uh, where is she from? And all these lovely questions. And, uh, and, and maybe how she got here, honestly. And, and then we can, uh, we can get into your book and, and all the other, uh, other things that uh, um, you're talking about. Okay. Um... I always actually find that a difficult question to ask because I'm not sure where to start. Uh, before the pandemic, um, my biggest role was uh, being a mom. But prior, <laughs> that's a pretty big role, I would say. Yeah. How many kids? How many kids? Role. How many kids do you have? I have three kids. I have three kids. So when the pandemic started, uh, my youngest was in grade eight and I had two in university. Um, they were going through and they were in varsity sports. So they're pretty big athletes, track and field. Uh, they were set to go to the nationals actually when the pandemic hit, but then that got canceled. Um, bef earlier, like when, when my, when my kids were, were, were quite young at that time, uh, my, my career, I was very career fo focused. So I was a principal statistician for a local economics firm. So my, my background, uh, I have a, a bachelor's of math and physics, and I have a master's and PhD in statistics. Um, so when I was working at the, uh, as a principal statistician, I did a lot of uh, 
risk benefit and options analysis and that type of thing, a lot of statistics. Uh, but then there was a point in my life where I, I, I got into an, an accident. A car crushed me between two vehicles when I was putting groceries in my car. What? And yeah, it was not a good time. <laughs> so after there's how, a couple of years. How does that happen? Okay. Well, after work one day, uh, we had picked the kids up and we went to the grocery store to pick up some things for, for supper. Um, and the kids were in the car and my husband was in the car and I ran into the store, picked up some food, was putting it in the trunk and another vehicle came in and um, smashed me between the two vehicles. So this was a, a, um, a drug dealer, actually. He was he was noticeably high and he, and he hadn't had a license since the eighties. Like it was bad. Um, and the, and the weather wasn't very good. Right. It was like, he didn't clear his windshield. It was like February, early February. But in the, the series of bad luck or whatever, that's, that's like, that's tough. Well, it is tough. Um, I don't think there's a real appreciation at the time, like how bad it is because your legs are crushed and they balloon out really big. You know, it's it's it's, it's a lot of, uh, of of you know vascular kind of damage, and you can't walk and you can't stand. It's very very painful. Um, but you think, oh yes, I'll I'll get through this. I'll be better like in a week, two weeks. You know, months go on. It's it's it was it was very challenging, um, and then. That was followed by a series of other unfortunate events. So it was like two years of, you just can't believe what we went, we went through. So my husband was doing so much. He had to do pretty much everything for a time. And then in his family, there was a series of deaths. So like, you know, uh, four, there was four over that two year span, uh, ending with his, his, his older brother. Um, and then, during that time, we also found out that our neighbor was a, a convicted pedophile. So it was just an unbelievable time. Um, so did you have to work? Were your kids around the neighbor? I mean, obviously, he's your neighbor. No, well, the thing is that. Uh, well, I had I always kept a very, very close eye on my, on my on my kids, so they were never really outside. They were quite young, so they were, they were always with yep. me. So it wasn't it wasn't an, an issue. Um, but of course, when we found out, it's like, you know, you don't want to be in a neighborhood where that's happening. And so we actually just picked up and moved to a country setting. So now we're like on a hobby farm. We don't really have neighbors. We have like cornfields. So it, what and it was, it was a result of that and the accident and a lot of things happening. We just wanted to kind of get away. What a, what a, um, yeah, that's a. Well, I got three young kids, right? Seven, six, four. And so uh, I, I think uh, on the list of things, you're like, uh, crap, right? Like, that ain't good. Um, a pedophile next door would be uh, probably on the top of that list, I would say. Pretty pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was two, it was like following the acts, it was two years. It was very, very hard. And we tried to keep things together as much as possible. And, um, you know, I, I was still working during that time. Uh, but it, it was, it was really too much. It was really too much to keep everything together. And then in, in, in my late thirties, I, I just, um, stepped down from my career and decided to focus on 
more on health, rehab, um, the kids. So we did a lot of focusing on, on, on their sports, music, education, that type of thing. Um, and then for my husband, he's a really good, uh, he's very creative. He's a good writer. So we decided to do uh, fantasy novels with him. And really, so that's, yeah. So that's kind of where it was when the pandemic hit, everything was kind of coming together. So he had written some books that were, were, at, were close to being published. And my, my, my children were doing great in sports. Uh, like I said, my, my older two are, um, were, were varsity athletes in track and field. They were set to go to the nationals. My youngest enjoyed, you know, hockey and softball and that type of thing. And um, then the pandemic hit and everything was canceled. So that's, that took us on a, yet another journey. So with, with myself, when they announced the pandemic and they announced the, the two weeks to flatten the curve, I was, I was very, I couldn't believe it actually. I went on my computer right away. I uh, got as much of the worldwide data as there was and did my own uh, risk assessment of the situation. So this kind of comes naturally to me when I, I used to do it all the time um, at work, like risk, risk, risk analysis, that type of thing. So when I looked at it, uh, and this was like March, 2020, so it was right away and I looked at it and right away I was, um, I was relieved, actually. I looked and I thought, oh good, my, my, the kids will be fine. The kids will be fine. Um, we're at fairly, you know, low risk. The kids were at almost none, uh, myself and my husband, you know, we're, we're healthy people. Um, you can see right away this mostly affected, very old and those with comor comorbid conditions. So my focus just shifted to like my parents. So I gave them a call and, and, and you know, told them to be careful and that my siblings would bring them um, their groceries, that type of thing. Um, and then of course I was, you know, more concerned I had two siblings in healthcare. So I focused on, on them because they worked in the hospitals. Um, but overall, I, I wasn't too worried about what I was seeing in terms of, of, of the pandemic. Um, and then when I was looking at what the government was doing and the lockdowns, I was quite surprised because that's not how you would mitigate your risk. You did not need to do what they were doing. So they seem to be acting quite contrary to what the data was saying. So initially you think, okay, they'll, they'll calm down and, and, you know, as they learn more, they will, you know, act accordingly, but they didn't, it just kind of seemed to get worse and worse. And this was very unnerving for me. You know, you sit in a very interesting position with, uh, your background and everything because, uh, how early are you looking at the pandemic, doing your risk, risk assessment and realizing, well, I mean, the kids are going to be fine. The only people that we really got to worry about are the elderly and and uh, and and maybe the healthcare workers. And you're like, okay, and and moving on from this. Like, is that in the first three months, the first year, the first, you know, is when do you do this risk assessment that you realize all of this? No, I, I did it. Uh, I did it right away. So basically, driving to Starbucks to get. <laughs> to get my latte <laughs> and it was announced uh premier ford we're, we're, i'm in ontario so premier ford uh, announced that he would do a, a, a two-week lockdown following the march break um 
because of the pandemic. And at, at that point, I'm like, what? It wasn't, it really wasn't on my, my radar. And I knew a lot of families who had, you know, just picked up their kids and went to uh, Florida for the March break. And we're all like, yeah, it's March break. Um, so at that time I came home, fired up my laptop and started, uh, you know, downloading the, the data right away. Um, it took a, a little bit just to get my, my, my spreadsheets all up and everything, but the analysis was like easy. It was, it's gotta be one of the easiest analysis I've ever done because the, yeah, we had a lot of early information and we could see what was going on and you could see right away that it was mostly impacting the, the elderly. And by, and the difference um, between the young and the old, you know, uh, in terms of risk changed a thousand fold. And so I'm thinking, wow, this, in terms of, you know, a virus or a disease, you don't want to say it, it actually was good news in my opinion, for the, the young and the economy, because it really did not have to affect um, working age people and the young. So it should not have had the impact it did on our, our economy. Right away, we should have put resources towards um, uh, making sure that the, the elderly and those with comorbid conditions were safe. That's where, the, that's where the emphasis should have went. Gina, I, I somehow I missed it. How quickly did you, how far into the pandemic did you do this analysis? So it's March, 2020. It was, oh my God. It was right away in 2020. It was, it was soon as I looked at the data. It was. <laughs> you know how, you know how upset that makes me? And yet, uh, you know, uh, here we are, right? Three years later and, and we know there's, you know, like I, I think there's a whole chunk of us that understand that. There's a nefarious plan, and 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 we saw it, it unfold through the years and everything else. But to, you know, uh, I've heard, I've had different people on here who have been like, you know, I just knew right away, and this is why, and they, this, and blah blah blah. But here it is, a statistician who's done the risk analysis and going in March of 2020. It, I can tell already oh, yeah. that that it's it's the young folks are going to be fine. And, but like it literally, well, I mean, right now in Canada, they're talking that, you know, that uh, get your booster, get your, your updated va COVID vaccine. And as young as six months, like, oh, yeah. why, why haven't you gone and done that? And you're like, this is the, and here you are, Gina saying, well, uh, March, 2020, I could tell them, you know, and one of the, one of the things that I struggled with all through COVID were, where were the voices like Gina, right? And like, Nowhere in like it was like everybody just lost their bloody minds all at the same time and nobody was willing to have a bit of a conversation to like de-escalate what was going on. Well, <laughs> so first I looked at the pandemic, like, you know, just because I'm worried for my parents, worried for my, my yeah. siblings. Right. So I was taking it very, very seriously. But I mean, seriously, but I, I was just not worried for, for my household at all, at all until. I think it was around the 23rd, 24th of March. It was around there where uh, the federal government stepped up and basically wanted to uh, give themselves unlimited power for like a couple of years because of this pandemic. And that was like within a couple of weeks of calling the pandemic. So right away, they were trying to grab a bunch of power. So when I seen that, I'm like, oh, my God, this I, I it, did, it did not feel right at all. Um, 
And then to your point, why, why weren't people standing up? I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, this is pretty obvious. It's, 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 it's obvious. You don't need a PhD in statistics to see it. So I figured there were many scientists and many statisticians and, and, and economists, many people must see that we're going down the wrong path. But why aren't they saying anything? And so I did a lot of research, uh, April, May, looking for those voices. And, and that's when I started seeing more and more censorship of, of, of scientists, actually, and scientific papers. So that's when I realized there was a lot of censorship going on and that then you know there's something like we're, we're in really big trouble. So, yeah. It's... Um... It's almost, when you look back at uh, the last three years, you know, you think we're out of it and we're on to better days and everything else. But when I listen to it, you know, it's, um, the censorship thing is is very, very prevalent in our society uh, today. Uh, you know, the, the I mean, it just, <laughs> the coup's four. I, I probably don't need to bring this up. To, well, actually, we probably should be bringing it up more. But they've been in remand now for 600 and... I don't know it's it's closing in on 700 days, and um, and they had an envelope that was supposed to get unveiled, and they've sealed it, and they're not going to talk about it, and and they can't use it as evidence supposedly, and and you go, and that's happening, right? And you got mm-hmm. you know you got uh, Jeremy McKenzie with uh, um, you know gets all these charges placed against him, and then you find out. Mm, it's coming out more and more that that wasn't on the up and up. And so that, that, but nobody's talking about it. it the, the, the censorship of even when they get uh, things drastically wrong, kind of just get swept under the rug. And that is Canada today. Yeah. The censorship is absolutely necessary for them to do what they're doing. It's absolutely necessary for them to have that kind of control. And, and one of the, one of the main reasons is because their evidence is so weak. It is so bad. You can, you can poke so many holes in it. There's no way it can withstand scrutiny at all, especially when you look at the, the statistics that they're putting out. I mean, what they're doing fails basic statistics, like statistics 101. They would, they would fail first year course. It's so bad. It's so easy to, 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 dismantle what they are doing. Um, so they have to, uh, they, 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 they have to censor real scientists, really. Like, I don't know how you can be a good statistician and go along with this. I don't. Well, let's think about that for a second. If, cause what I sit here, I took stats in uh, college and, uh, that was a tough course. So, uh, my hat's off to you. Um, I did find it interesting, but, uh, um, it was a tough course. Uh, it's not like you're, and I don't mean this in the wrong way. It's not like you're unique. There's tons of people that, that are statisticians. It's, you know, is it this giant number? Is it like a petroleum engineer out in Alberta? Maybe not, but it's not like it's, uh, you know, in the realm of Connor McDavid of the NHL. How many of those are there? Uh, I don't know, five, maybe, uh, players in that range. Like there's, there's gotta be a, a whole grouping of statisticians across all of Canada, across the bloody world. And, 
they like if they looked at it because they probably do because the one thing I, I I love about your story is you know well I created a couple spreadsheets and rattle off my data and within a couple minutes I'm like well this doesn't hold water it's like they had to have done the same thing they would have been compelled to do the same thing because you love playing with numbers and seeing what happens I assume well I I mean I'll give it to people that that maybe they. If you don't look at it, then yeah, you can go along with what's happening. And if you don't look at it, you don't want to look at it, and you trust um, the experts that the government has has chosen uh, for you to listen to. <laughs> if you have that kind of trust, and 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 that's good enough for you, maybe not everybody has a, a curious mind. I don't know, but uh, but if if you do have the background and you did look at it. I, I don't see how you could have gone along with it. Um, and, and, and like I said, you don't have to be a statistician to see it. Like my household, we're, we're very into the sciences here. Uh, both myself and my husband were into, we, we met in the math physics program when we were younger. My, my, my oldest uh, son, he just got his degree in applied math and physics. So we're very you know, mathematical. My daughter um, isn't as much interested in mathematics. She's more in social sciences, but she was the first one in the household to read the um, clinical trials for the um, vaccines. And she came to me and said, mom, what, what is this? It, it's, it's terrible. And she started going through all the things wrong with it. And she's Your the daughter one did? Yeah. And she's the one person in the family who wasn't into science. So I'm thinking you don't need to be a scientist to see it. First off, hats off to you. That's super cool. You think of uh, grown adults don't want to read uh, the, the the papers on it, let alone, you know, uh, other statisticians or, or science folk, right? Ah, they just trust. Ble- ah, no, it's all good. Your da- How old was your daughter while she was doing that? Well, she was in university. So university, so she- yep. Cool. Yeah, so she's in, yeah, she was in university. She was uh, the varsity. Still, hats, hats off to you, Gina. That's pretty cool. Well, it, the thing was that when the pandemic hit, it hit the kids really hard because they were very, um, very, very social. They were going out all the time to their track meets and with their friends and track and field was a very big part of their life. And that got taken away completely. So right away, they're waiting like, oh, when can we get back to it? Um so we were looking at what the government was doing and, and I would share with them. We were very open on the breakfast table, for example. I'd say, oh, look what they're saying now. And, and the kids would sit there and critique just logically how flawed it was. And, they, and they'd kind of, you know, laugh about it because they figured it would pass and it was so ridiculous, but it didn't pass. And so once it became obvious that, like to my daughter, especially when, they were, when she was told that, yeah, your track and field is over, it's not going to happen, um, you know, it was devastating. She was crying. It was, it was awful. So my son, he's, he's two years younger than her, like her, my, my oldest son. And, um, he kept thinking that he was going to go back to, uh, varsity sports. And in 2021, when it looked like they were going to have a, you know, if they were going to open it up, he was, he was thrilled, but then right away, they, they said that he'd have to get vaccinated in order to do his sports. So that became an issue. So w- because we were keeping an eye on everything, when they were talking about the vaccines, um, I was looking into it 
right away. I was looking into it, you know, in the in the fall of, of, of 2020. And then when the um, the clinical trial reports were available, we, we read them to see like, OK, what how is this? Um, and there was a lot of red fra- flags there, a lot of a lot of uh, red flags. And there was really no reason for, you know, most people to take this because COVID just wasn't much of a risk to most people. Sure, if you're over 70 and you have comorbid conditions, then, then you, you know, maybe you, you, you'd consider it. But for, for children, there was definitely no reason. There's little to no benefit, even if they worked, even, even if they had worked perfectly, the benefit just wasn't there for kids because they weren't really at risk of serious illness or death or anything like that. And the risks were very, very, very high. And when I say the risks were high, I have to, to, to mention how I, I look at risk. I look at risk also as a measure of the uncertainty with these new vaccines. So it's not just a, ma- a matter of um, the likelihood of a specific adverse event. It's how much uncertainty do they know about these vaccines? And there's a lot of uncertainty. And I look at that and like, well, where there's uncertainty, there is risk. And then when you look at how they are um, tracking um, or not tracking the adverse events, that that's even worse. So that's that's another topic. I try to stay away from talking too much about that because there's a lot of nuances with that. And then there's a lot of debate. Um, and so one step at a time, I look at transmission because to me, that one's really super easy to talk about. It's and, and to, super easy to demonstrate the, the fraud that went into that. And then once you dismantle that, you can move on to how they're um, discussing adverse events. But one step at a time. <laughs> You're saying that uh, transmission is easy to track. You said fraud. Of, well, I combined it. Fraud of transmission. Easy to point out that. What, explain that for me. Um, okay. So, first of all, when when you look at at, at the statistics, um, we can get into the. Oh, I'm not even sure how where to start. I'm not sure if we should start with the book or. Let me start with the case of 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 Fisman's fraud, which I wrote the book on. And and here I tell you what, uh, I'll bring it up on the screen. This is this is okay. uh, this is the book that uh, when when is it being released, uh, Gina? So it, it it will be for it'll be released on Tuesday, on the seventh of November. Okay, so by the time this releases, it will have been released, so people can go on Amazon, I assume. Yeah. They can go on Amazon and Fisman's fraud, and uh, there, there's the there's the image of it, folks. So if you want to go pick up a copy, that's that's the way uh, to do it. Okay, I'll I'll just say one thing. Oh, can I go back? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, so you see the the main book is Fisman's fraud: the rise of Canadian hate science, um, and then there is a supplementary guide: Fisman's fraud: the accomplices. I just want to make a note that I try I. To be as transparent as I could, I did release the letters that I sent to the different um, uh, associations that were involved in this. 
So Fisman's Fraud, the Accomplices, it's just a supplementary text with like letters and emails and that type of thing uh, for those who'd want to see it. But the main book is Fisman's Fraud, The Rise of Canadian Hate Science. So you're saying you can buy uh, the Accomplices as well, and all that is, is is a combined text of emails, or is that just something that can be found? Um, that's just like the letters, the emails um, that I sent to... Uh, Canadian Medical Association Journal, University of Toronto. Yes. Uh, sorry, Gina. Yeah. I'm just meaning if I search, uh, where can I find that? Where can I find the accomplices? Oh, they're both they're both on Amazon. Oh, okay. So that that's yeah. where, uh, so if you go to Amazon and you type in, uh, once again, I'll bring it back up, Fisman's Fraud, there's a chance or probability you will see both books. And if you're confused, that now that makes sense. Yeah. One is the, the, the letters and everything. And that's the accomplices, and the second or the the main book is the rise of the Canadian hate science. Right. So most people, if you if you are interested in this story, you'll want um, the rise of Canadian hate science. It's just for people who maybe who, want proof or th that I sent things that are very you. thorough and want to see it. They'll want both, essentially. Right. Yes. I, I appreciate you you uh, explaining that because I guarantee. There will be people who buy both because they'll be like, well, I got to I got to see what she sent because it, 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 it solidifies it even more. OK, yeah. So with with Fisman, what what he and his two colleagues did was they they basically used um, mathematical models to scapegoat the unvaccinated Canadians. Um, they cast unvaccinated Canadians as disease carriers. Before you before you get to that, I apologize in her. Interjecting, Fisman. Who is he? Okay, so 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 David Fisman is a tenured professor um, at the University of Toronto. Um, he also served on the Ontario Science Table um, and whatnot. So the book does go through his connections and who he is. If you, it's on one of the slides. If you want to bring that up, sure. Slide number six. Slide number six. Right there. Okay, so here I put Fisman in the center and just looked at some of his connections. So um, with, with, with Fisman, he is on the, he was on the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table. Um, and that was an initiative of the Dalai Lana School of Public Health out of University of Toronto. And they advised the uh, Ontario government during the pandemic. And they also, you know, uh, advised uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, Health Canada, um, and the government of Ontario in general. Um, Fisman, when he was doing the study, he was uh, tethered to a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, you know, and so forth. He also um, did some 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 legal roles for for the uh, for ETFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, the Registered Nurses Association. Um, so basically, he advised these organizations with respect to COVID nineteen. So, for example, um, ETFO, the 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 schools they were looking into um you know the school closures so he is all for closing the schools um and and and, and that type of thing 
with the, the nurses association, they, they wanted mandates, vaccine mandates. So he was a, a, a proponent of that. Um, when you, so you when, look at the, when you have him tied, uh, like when I look at Pfizer, it goes directly to him. What, uh, what was it about him and Pfizer that were connected? So on, on, if you go through my book, um, it just talks about how he's on the advisory table for different pharmaceutical companies. So he has affiliations with these, um, these pharmaceutical companies in advisory type of positions. And that just creates a conflict of interest when you are yeah. writing a paper that basically is promoting or advocating for vaccine mandates. So you have a conflict of interest there. And so he does, this is reported in, in the paper. It's, it's not hidden. Um, this little diagram you can get just by looking at, um, if you go to the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table, they have to list their pot potential conflicts of interest. So you can get most of these just looking at that. So these associations are well known. It doesn't take a lot of digging to see them. Yeah, well, a lot of this doesn't take a whole lot of digging to see it, but uh, um, that's what, you know, is kind of head scratching at times, um, you know, because uh, if you, what did they say? Stop doing your own research pretty much, you know, and, and, and that was always an interesting uh, way to, to, to look at it from, uh, well, I don't know, government standpoint. Well, the thing is that they, it, it's funny because you have, they're supposed to, um, to make known their conflicts of interest, but just because you, you report that you have these affiliations doesn't make the conflict of interest go away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, if there's a conflict of interest, look into it and, and, you know. And, but, and uh, maybe think, oh, and maybe it's a so conflict of interest, and we should just stop and find somebody who doesn't have fifty million contra uh, conflict of interest. Um, yeah, but the issue also is if you have a conflict of interest, and then you go through the paper and you see a whole lot of problems, that's also a red flag. It's like, hey, is these conflicts of interest are are they playing a role? So if everything was done on the up and up and, 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 and you can, um, it was legitimate and you can withstand the scrutiny, then it may be okay. But when you can't, then it becomes an issue. It's like, well, how is this getting passed? Then you start to question some of these relationships. Well, go back then. I interjected and took us off on a different uh, thought process, but you were talking about Fisman and his team and how they were scapegoating the unvaccinated. Lead me, lead me back uh, through what you were trying to um trying to explain Gina when I when I interjected I just wanted to get a better feel uh, for Fisman at the at the beginning um okay so why don't we go to uh, the easiest way to explain Fisman's fraud is to look at what was happening in December of 2021 so maybe if you go to slide number two okay so these are just basically print screens of what was happening in December of 2021 and you have here with about 80% of the population vaccinated and the vaccine passports in full force, you had a huge um, surge in COVID-19 cases. So you see the little diagram here, it points to um, you know, the, the Omicron wave. And this is basically the first uh, true test of the vaccine's uh, effectiveness because this is the first you know, winter season uh, where we need protection. And at this point in time, 
unvaccinated people were not permitted in most public venues. You know, we were banned from, from, from restaurants, theaters, uh, a lot of sports. Uh, you, you've had a lot of employers uh, had basically purged their premises from, from unvaccinated workers. We couldn't travel by plane or train. And yet with all these restrictions on, we see a huge surge in COVID-19 cases. So this does not look good already for the vaccines. And then the second graph there is the hospitalizations. So you, you see, even with this milder variant, uh, the hospitalizations like double. And so this is bad news for the vaccines intuitively. Wouldn't you agree, Sean? Yeah, well, you'd think... You would think um, if if you got 80% of the population vaccinated and you've eliminated uh, those dirty unvaccinated from being able to participate in society that you'd have relatively zero cases, uh, you know, because you've you've vaccinated and you've eliminated a lot of uh, contact with, uh, well, the dirty unvaccinated. Right. So that's where things stood. So if you look at the next slide, which is a little bit more of a breakdown. Um, so that's, yeah, here we go. So when you want to look at the next slide, which is uh, government of Ontario data. So if you look at the left screen, this is just a screenshot. I did not have to do anything except, you know, print screen. And that's what you got from the Ontario government. And it shows the number of uh, cases, COVID cases over that time period in the vaccinated group versus the unvaccinated group. So you can see that the whole surge, uh, like a, the majority of the surge was- was Unva Or um, was vaccinated. Was was vaccinated by the their own data. Um, so in this, even though this was the case, the rhetoric against the unvaccinated at the time went way up. So they were being the small, uh, group of unvaccinated cases were, were being blamed for this surge amongst the vaccinated people. And there was talk at this time, well, not just talk, the government actually imposed more, more restrictions. So the, the, the cross-border restrictions on uh, unvaccinated truckers, for example, uh, more restrictions came in and then we had the, the uh, Freedom Convoy come to Ottawa during this time. So that's what was going on. And um, it was pretty clear that the vaccines did not um, curtail transmission. Provinces started to relent on their vaccine passports. And it looked like the federal government was, was losing the narrative, basically. So that was, you know, winter months of, of, of I guess, 2022 then, so Christmas 2021, you're into early 2022. And then Fisman's study basically comes to the rescue. So if you look on the right-hand side there, this is what Fisman's um, study, their graph. So in this simulated version, you have the unvaccinated was uh, basically responsible for for you know, the majority of the COVID cases and the vaccinated to a lesser degree. 
Can can uh, I feel like uh, th- you remember me saying before we started? I'm going to ask some really dumb questions. Here's a dumb question: Can you explain this slide to me? What does one e plus zero five even mean? At least on the left hand slide, uh, left side of the page, I'm like I read that and I go, oh yeah, that makes sense. It's like you know, uh, for all of us that have ever built a graph or a chart, you know, like uh, that makes sense. The uh, the Fisman's, uh data, I look at it and I go, what is what does zero e plus zero zero even mean? Like I I don't even <laughs> understand it. Yeah, so times ten to the exponent five is right. So you'd have your five zeros. So oh. that's another thing with Fisman's curve. And I, I mentioned this too um, in one of the letters, in, in, in one of the, uh, in the supplementary text, that he's generally off by, by an order of magnitude, you know, like his, his, his scale is off. But even, even with the scale being off, and then he also flips the results between what we really saw in reality versus. So what, what you're he saying says. is, Gina, this is one evil human being, and I know you're not. You, I guess I. That's just what I hear because I'm like, how, why, why, oh why would you do that? Okay, well we'll get we'll get into. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is 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 that when I look at the reality and then look at what he's saying, it's like. Yeah, he's inverted it. He's inverted it. Like, I mean, you don't now, have to, it, it, there's, it, he's inverted it. That, to me, it's, it's yes, very self-explanatory. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Now, some people may come out and say, oh, but there was more vaccinated people in the population, and that's why you have more vaccinated cases. And when you look at the case rates, um, maybe things look differently. So if you go to the next slide. Oh, I'm trying to change the slide. So this is the the rate. So this is the the you know proportion of people in the vaccinated group um, with COVID during this time, and then the proportion in the unvaccinated group. So again, if this is the Ontario um, data, just a print screen. So I did not have to make. I mean, I put the labels on, but uh, I did not have to yeah, build do any anything. I didn't have to build anything. I just say, yep, this is what the Ontario data says. And when you look at this, to be fair, you can look at the Ontario statistics and you can discuss issues with those statistics. And I have. I mean, especially when you look at um, at, at the rates. Uh, when you, We all know that the way they count is a little bit funny. <laughs> so... For example, if you uh, got vaccinated and then you you tested positive for COVID within two weeks of that vaccine, yes, you're uh, you're listed unvaccinated. You're listed unvaccinated. So that so that the so that would increase the estimate for the unvaccinated group to make them look like you know they had a higher rate. That that so that's one thing. Another is that they have a pretty good handle on how many people are vaccinated but they tend to undercount the number of unvaccinated people in the population. And again, when you do that, the unvaccinated rates will be inflated here. So what I'm saying is this is their graph, but in reality, it looks even worse, uh, is likely to be even worse for the vaccines. Does that make sense? It it does. Yeah. So basically... Well, and and I was just going to say, and once again, when you look on Fisman's side, of the of the right, it makes it look horrific. Yeah, horrific. Like, look at that 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 huge spike in the unvaccinated. Like, 
the... you could imagine being uh you could imagine being like a politician or just a business owner and seeing that and going or the, just the uh, average population and seeing that and going holy crap man we get like everybody needs to get vaccinated right i mean it would be very convincing if you didn't know what the heck you were looking at or didn't dig a little deeper right but the, the problem i have with that is the government of ontario data is right there for everybody like the politicians should be looking at yes. their own data i mean it's right there and they, they they had it for months for months they had that data and they wait until Fisman's fake study comes out and then present the fake study in parliament um, to justify extending the restrictions and that's what happened you had uh the liberal mp come out the the parliamentary secretary secretary to the minister of health um he comes out and says hey this study says that you know these restrictions and the mandates and everything else is is justified and they and they run with it but it's funny because Fisman's study came out in April uh, 20, April 25th, 2022. And by that time, they were collecting data. So April 5th, 2022, sorry, like after the trucker convoy, everything. April 25th, 20, 2022 is when the study came out. So yeah, so this is past the trucker convoy. The provinces had um, gotten rid of their, their uh, restrictions. But the federal government wanted to keep its travel restrictions against the unvaccinated, and they did not want to uh, do away with the, the federal vaccine mandates either. They wanted to say, nope, we still need them. So FISMA study came out and they said, hey, look, we still need these restrictions. At the time, though, they had lots, they had months and months to look at the, the real data set to say that's not the case. And they even had, um, at that time, they were tracking the boosted population too. And the problem is that by spring, it was the boosted individuals that had a much, uh, much, you know, much higher incidence rate than everybody else. So that looks really bad for the vaccines. But, but the, but the point, the point of it is that basically what, what, what Fisman and his colleagues ended up doing was overriding the Omicron wave with a fake simulation that basically said the opposite. And then based on that, unvaccinated people were scapegoated and the establishment went along with it. See, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, um, they published the study. The federal government funded the study through CIHR. Many, many uh, scientists wrote to the, to the journal uh, and, and, and openly um, trashed it, basically saying that, that there's so many flaws in this model and that it's in, and that it does scapegoat the unvaccinated. So they were they were apprised of this by many uh, scientists. It wasn't just me. Um, I think I was a little bit more uh, persistent in my complaints. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to well, first of all, I wanted the record to be set straight. And I, and, and I was hoping that they would retract the paper, set the record straight and investigate the researchers. That's what I was looking for. But what I found was the establishments were more than willing to rubber stamp the fraud. 
So what you're saying is you were persistent in reaching out over and over and over again to try and get them to acknowledge that there has been fraud, essentially, and and to acknowledge it and have it removed. And they have basically said, no dice, we are in agreement with what has been written. More or less, yes. So when when I look at, when I I say fraud, so in, in, in science, we're looking at research fraud. And, and so with research fraud, um, there's fabrication and falsification. So fabrication would be, you know, making up the results, um, fabricating the results or making up the, the data results and trying to pass it off as a, a true reflect, reflection of reality. Right. So that also includes making up data when it should be, when it should be, um, when you should actually use an experiment or observational data. So there's no real reason for David Fisman to make up data when we have the data readily available. Okay. So making up data and results and then trying to pass it off as a true reflection of events, that's fabrication. Falsification is, is basically when, when you manipulate the research process to, to get a desired result. All right. So, he also did that because basically he decided to do a simulation that would show the unvaccinated are responsible for the, um, the COVID surge and, and, and that they're a disproportionate risk. And when I say that it was contrived, I mean, it was contrived for that purpose. This was a deterministic model. You feed in your, what you want and it spits it out in graphical form. So basically, if you just put into the model, okay, we're going to give um, vaccinated people this high, um, you know, immunity rate and unvaccinated people a low one, then you're going to spit out the graph that he spits out. And that's basically what he did. So based on that, you know, one parameter uh, or the difference in that one parameter, you get the result you want. So it's basically there just to get the results that you want. Yeah. I've always thought um, did sales in the in oil field uh, in the oil field for close to a decade, and when you build charts and graphs and everything else, you can kind of creatively manipulate it if you want to to show an outcome that maybe isn't exactly happening. You're just you're just changing the 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 parameters of even just the chart, right? Like uh, we've seen that uh, when it comes to um, Oh, I'm I'm spacing on the. Uh, me and Twos have talked about this on the mashup, folks, uh, multiple times. When they put on a chart and 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 they they shrink uh, the the left hand column of what you go up in in you know it's the first ten thousand and then maybe to shrink it instead of going up to five hundred thousand you do this like real short uh, jump from there. It's like and, and then it just changes what the the graph shows. And to the average person who just takes a quick glance at that, you don't think much of it. But if you sit there and stare, you go, "Well, why would they do that?" Well, that's manipulating the, the the graph is what you're what you've done, and what's always unnerving when you know when I have somebody back on to talk about uh, COVID and everything that came down with that is the level of all of that 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 has happened to the Canadian population and probably the world, but certainly here in Canada, we all saw it firsthand. And you're just explaining it in way better terms than I ever could about how bad it really was and is. 
Right. Well, I'll just finish off with, with so it, it wasn't just they manipulated the graph. They, they just created a graph that gave them the results they wanted. Right. So it's just outright. Yeah. It's, 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 it's uh, on the level of it's like, bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. And, and part of falsification is omitting, um, omitting observations that, that go against your desired result. Right. So, if, but the thing is that they had to omit the entire real world data set in order to get their result. So they did totally omit data that would contradict the narrative that they wanted. So I'm yeah, glad we can, I'm glad we can laugh about this. You know, it's so bad that the only thing you can do is laugh a little, you know, because like, it's just like, what, what, I mean, this is, this is insanity and it well, is. It's yeah, it, it's bad. It's <laughs> the, the funny, it's not funny. But when you go into to academia, they, they do their, um, their research and, and academics will look at the research, a lot of them, uh, and, and I, I do this, well, I'm not in academics anymore, but you, you tend to look at it from a scientific perspective and go through their research and, and critique what is wrong with it. And so I did do that. You, you, you critique um, the model, you, can, you critique how they got their estimates, you do all that, and, and you show that it has no scientific merit. But sometimes you miss the main point. And, and the main point with Fizmans isn't just that his model was bad. It wasn't just that it had no scientific merit. It's that it was, out, it was textbook scientific fraud. Falsification, fabrication, this is considered scientific fraud. So because of that, I felt this was a, um, a very good case to highlight because it usually isn't this easy to show fraud. Usually scientists are more careful or I'm not saying a lot of them do it, but when, when, when there is scientific fraud, um, there's usually some kind of plausible deniability but I just don't see it here with this case. So what did what did politicians, what did people say when you pointed this out and sent them these letters and was like, this is like so blatantly obvious, we need to do something about this? Um, yeah, if you want to go to, I'll just quickly show maybe slide seven to show the, sure. the difference. Yeah, so here we go. Um, so I did things in a very methodological way. So the first place I went was to uh, CMAJ since they published the study. That's Canadian Medical Association Journal. Um, that's where they they were flooded with 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 e letters in the first week. I think there was over twenty two other scientists that sent e letters saying, "Hey, there's something wrong with this. You 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 need to retract it or you need to correct it." And, and so they were flooded with, pe with people, with scientists basically um, asking for corrections right away within the first week. And I said something to them as well. I, I sent a, you know, a critique to their portal um, asking for a retraction of the paper, but I went further and I sent them a, a letter that gave like a 20 page breakdown of all the things bad with this model and why they should totally retract the paper. They basically 
didn't give me a response. They did not engage in any kind of, of, of real dialogue. It was like an automated, we got your thing, you know, we got your, your letter, that's about it. So then I went and filed a complaint with the University of Toronto. And I gave them the same um, document that, that went through the whole model and all the things wrong with the model, explained how bad it was, but also the damage that it was doing, the scapegoating. Um, basically, you have a moral obligation and a professional obligation to, to, to investigate. And, and so I went to their integrity office three times. So the first time I sent the letter, they came back and, and they denied that their framework dealt with um, this kind of misconduct. So then I had to go through the framework and point out exactly the sections in their framework where it deals with fabrication and falsification. So it's like, yeah, you are, you know, you are supposed to handle this. This is where it, what it says in your guides. Then they come back and they say, oh, that's not what's happening. So they tried to deflect it. They gave me a straw man, art, uh, a straw man um, kind of argument as to why, you know, basically they started to refute things that I was not saying. So they kind of misrepresented my complaint. So then I sent him another letter spelling it out so that there's no misinterpretation. There's no way to wiggle out of it. Um, I really like that letter. That's my favorite letter, actually. My last letter to University of Toronto. And, and they responded by saying, case closed. They basically ran away. There was no way of really wiggling out of it. And they just closed the file. So once they closed the file, I now can go to the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, CIHR, because they funded the, they funded the research. And... Um, the University of Toronto, when, when they're given, because the researchers were given CIHR grant money, that if there's something wrong, some kind of complaint, then it's up to the University of Toronto to investigate it. And if they don't, then I can go to CIHR and complain about University of Toronto. So that's what I did. So CIHR, I, I understand it to be that CIHR, because it's a, you know, they're, they're answerable to, to the Parliament of Canada. And because this study was waved around in Parliament, I felt they had a duty to set the record straight because it was used in Parliament. And so the presidents um, got together. Um, it's what uh, the president of CIHR and CERC and I think SSHRC, is that how it is? I have to look that up. They got together and they basically said, Nope, they're not going to do anything. Gave it the green light, file closed. So that was the process that I went through. But, you know, you do a little bit more digging. Um, and I felt that there was more going on here. Um, when, see, when the journal didn't respond, I looked a little bit more at what was going on with the journal. And... You know, I was able to look at uh, the preprint of Fisman's paper and then the changes that were made as it went through the peer review process. And that was very disturbing because I found that a lot of the fraudulent statements appear to have been made during the peer review process. So the peer review process is supposed to like get rid of problematic statements. They're not supposed to add to them. 
And at that, and so once I went through this whole process, I decided I would go to the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, and ask them to investigate. So that was the the process I went through. You know, I I don't know. Maybe um, as soon as you said the University of Toronto said that's not within our guidelines, and you know the the you know if I'm sitting as the U of T, okay, and you yeah. come to me. The first, you, the first thing, okay, but maybe is, well, what are guidelines? Is, is that like to say that they aren't in our guidelines and then to have you go check and be like, no, actually they're right there. Like that's your guidelines right there is like, well, that's about as unnerving as it gets, I think, right? Because to have one person create a, a, a terrible study that is bad, bad, bad on the level of bad, it is bad. But right. then to have the institution that uh, employs him go, oh yeah, we don't need to worry about that. That that's terrifying. Like to me, that that means the institution is is uh, is either complicit or is literally driving down with nobody at the helm. Well, they try to say that oh, this isn't really fraud. This is a difference of scientific opinion. That's you'll see that. A lot, um, and and I've had to go through a lot of, of of you know articulation with the university because they try to wiggle it out and, and, and use words in funny ways. But I think one of the things that people that that's really important that maybe I haven't <coughs> mentioned is there was an attempt, like they they try to come back and say, oh, this was a modeling study, so modeling, so it's so it's okay. So you have to go back and say several things. First of all. All of, all of science is based on models. You can't do any statistics without model assumptions at all. I mean, if you don't have a model, you don't have, you can't make inferences. So to say it's, it's you know, it's, it's modeling. It's like, well, we use models for everything in science. Second, you are using your models to affect real people. So it better be, it better be tethered to reality. You can't just make up baloney and then, you know, impose these restrictions on people. But more, more importantly, there was an attempt to make this look like it was based on real people. There was that attempt. And if you go through the preprint of this paper that, you know, that was given to CMAJ before publication, and you, and you look at it, it's amazing the changes that were made between the preprint and the final publication. And, and one of the things is in the preprint, uh, there was some, you know, formulas, differential equations. It was more obviously a model, but as you went to the published version, those were stripped out of the paper. And in the in the in the preprint, they mentioned the word people one time, but by the time it was published, it was meant people were mentioned seventy six times. People, this people, 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 seventy six times was mentioned in that article. And there were no people in this study, none. This was, there was no people. So when you say you found that, you know, people, you know, who were unvaccinated were, had a disproportionately higher risk, you did not, they did not find that people anything. There was no people in the study. So. Yes, this is, you know, it doesn't seem to matter how far away we get from 2022 specifically, 
when I have a guest come on and lay it down so concisely, um, you just realize what we're up against, you know? Like, th this is, this is, um, this is the machine, you know? Like, it's, it just, it, it wanted a certain outcome, and it was willing, and still is willing to protect it at all costs. That's, that's all I see. Yes, and, and, and I think people have to understand that that is the case, and, and, and start questioning why. Um, so you do you do a lot more more digging to try to figure out why because a lot of people like to believe that this is behind us, but there's why would a reputable university go along with this? Why would CIHR not correct the record? Why? And 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 the the answers are not nice, but they're right in front they're right in front of us. So when you look at you know, what, what, what David Fisman says about his study and what led him to do the study, um, they're, they've, they've been pretty open as to the motivations behind the study. Um, and it's even in his paper where he, where he writes that the results of the study uh, undermine the assertion that vaccine choice is best left to the individual. This is key. When you look at the reason behind the study, they want to demonstrate that it shouldn't be left to the individual, that vaccine choice should not be an individual right. So you see that there's an attempt to perhaps reinterpret or um, look at Section 7 of the Charter in a, in a different way in which we should not be looking at vaccine choice as an individual right. That's, that is where I believe the main reason for the study was for that. And, and you see that, that, that that is gaining traction. That whole notion that, oh, you need to vaccinate to protect me has really gained a lot of traction in the last couple of years. Even they though it's completely bogus. It's, it's completely bogus. And, and I think you have to realize that the charter is supposed to be there to protect individual rights. And here we have a case where researchers were willing to commit fraud. And the, you know, the academic institutions were willing to back it. The, the government was willing to fund it. All right. We need protections. We need protections in place when this happens. So this is... My, my book kind of goes through that whole arc and, and, and it, it talks about the journey. It also talks about the, um, all the safeguard failures that occurred are the main safeguard failures that occurred over the past uh, couple of years to bring us to this point, because we didn't just get to this study. There was a whole bunch of safeguard failures along the way. So it, it lays that out um, as well. Is there anything else, uh, Gina? You've laid down a ton this morning. You know, I I, I, uh, I always talk about Chris Sims because when she comes on the show, Alberta Taxpayers Federation, she lays down what other people say in two and a half hours in about 10 minutes. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't have much more because you've just explained it so concisely. 
and I, it's funny, you, you've uh, hammered out an entire book in about an hour, and I'm like, uh, it has been a lot. It, it has been a lot, and stuff that I, I guess I, I don't know, I, I guess I probably never paid attention to or didn't know to look for or, or what, what have you. So I'm really uh, appreciative of, of uh, Sheldon for um, uh, bringing us together so that I, I could have you on and, and talk about it. But I don't want to, I, I got nothing but time, so if there's other things you want to make sure that people know, um, please don't let me, uh, end it short. Um, well, I guess one of the things, uh, I do is, is in, in the book, I try to put things into a context. So I kind of take us on a journey uh, of what was going on during this time. And so I do look at, uh, what was going on politically and what the politicians were saying and, and laying that out, because one of the things that, that is remarkable is when you look at the, I'll call it the narrative and the science behind it, they've had to shift the, um, the endpoints, right? They had to shift it from, oh, we'll stop people from catching it. Oh no, it will stop people from severe illness and death. Oh no, you know, so there's, there was been a shifting of the science as the science became available, even though the actual science was pretty clear uh, in this regard initially, like it, it did. <laughs> The science shifts when there's a lot of manipulation. Okay, I mean, science become your 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 conclusions can become more accurate as time goes on, but you don't get this shifting all over the place. That is just they've they've had to shift the narrative because the data was so bad. But it, it kind of goes through how science seems the science seemed to shift, but the political arc was always the same. When you look at what was said in the beginning, middle, and it was very consistent. They wanted to put, when it came to the, the, the vaccines, they wanted to put as many jabs in people's arms as they could. And when you look at what they were saying and what they were doing at the time, it's very consistent. So I do bring, bring the reader through what was going on politically, what was being said in the media, what the science was saying. And you, you, you can, it just, to me, makes things very, very clear. It lays it lays it out. It, it talks a little bit also about um, when you get into the safeguard failures. We'll talk about what was going on in terms of of the, the the federal vaccine mandates and what people were going through. So that's all in there. Well, um, once again, for the listener, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, what I'll do is. In the show notes, I'll put a link directly to your book. That way, uh, if anyone's like, ooh, I have got to pick this up, they can just scroll down in the podcast notes and boom, it's right there. And they can just click on it and then and then away you go. Because, um, you know, of, of, of level of importance when it comes to uh, understanding what, what took place, um, honestly, you've laid it out in, in such a brief period of time. And I think it'd be really important that people uh, support you and pick up the uh, pick up a copy of the book, Gina. Like, uh, it's nah, um, I just you know, there's no level. It doesn't seem to matter how many times I think I've hit the the bottom or dug, you know, like of of how bad it is. You there's always a new level, and you've just added a new level of how um, how bad this really and truly is. Right. I, I think I look at the book a little bit like a reality check. Oh, you know, there's been a lot of gaslighting over the last few years. And um, that 
does a lot of bad things to people psychologically. And then when you read the book and it lays it out, I think a lot of people will feel, um, you know, validated because they've been dismissed and, and they've been told, no, that didn't happen or it wasn't that bad and, and that type of thing. And when you look at it and you even look at it from the, the big picture perspective, it's like, yeah, it was bad and it did happen. And I, I think uh, I'm hoping it does bring, you know, comfort to a lot of people. But again, like I think this builds a solid, solid case to bring in protections. Well, I uh, appreciate you coming on. And um, what we're going to do here, folks, is we're, we're uh, I, I, I'm just kind of making a, an adjustment as we go. What we're going to do is we're going to keep uh, Gina for another 10 minutes. But what we're going to do is we're going to slide over to Substack. So we're going to end this portion. And if you want to uh, hop over to Substack, it's free. All you got to do is just click on the link in the show notes. And um, we're going to ask her one or two more questions. And then we're going to let her out of here. So thanks, Gina, for hopping on. And uh, stick with us, folks because we're going to hop over to Substack and we hope to see you there.